lot of our behaviors, they're there for a reason. If you've tried using willpower and you can't stop it, I'm not sure willpower is the problem. Try and figure out what it's doing for you. Is it that you don't like your job? Now, I'm not saying quit your job. What I am saying is maybe at the weekends or in the evenings, engage in that creative side. You know, live in alignment with who you really are. And I promise you, some of those behaviors that you're trying to stop, like three hours on Instagram in the evening, or online shopping, or gambling, or sugar, I promise you that those things will start to fade away as you no longer need them. That little nugget right there was from Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Now, this guy is a legend. Uh, comes from the UK, as you could hear from his accent, where he has the number one health podcast. He's also got a show, it's on the BBC, called Doctor in the House, and is the author of, count them now, five best-selling books. Um, but beyond his accolades, he is a doctor who has, over especially the last five years, shifted the way he practices medicine and has gone to largely these contemporary media channels like this show here and others to help share what I consider to be brilliant and very simple but effective advice on core aspects of our health. I can't wait for you to hear this show. Certainly one of the most powerful episodes that I am uh, I think we've recorded this year. I can't wait for you to enjoy it. Feel free to give us a shout on social. Please reach out to him. He is just an absolute gem as well. Um, so I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy this conversation, yours truly, with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Hey there, I got a question for you. Whether in your business or your personal life, what is it that you're curious about? Follow up on that. How are you learning, immersing yourself, and just generally playing in this area of interest? Now, if you've already got this figured out, fantastic. If not, that's okay too. But I wanted to encourage you to explore and play just a little bit more. Especially early on, worrying about turning your new passion into a profession, that's only going to serve to undermine the very passion that inspired you in the first place. All this really is, is an invitation to explore Creative Live. That's right, Creative Live is a company that I started. It's where the world's top creators, entrepreneurs, Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, it's where the best of the best go to teach. And if you're new here to the show, Creative Live is an online learning platform basically that has classes in photography, video, art, design, music, audio, and all kinds of other classes, anything that has to do with making a living and a life in any of these disciplines. Now, Creative Live has a class just for you, built from the ground up, taught by one of these groundbreaking leaders in their field. The cool thing is it's all available under one little subscription, so I would encourage you to take the next step in pursuing your new curiosity, your new passion, your side hustle, and your business. You can subscribe at creativelive.com for unlimited access to more than 2,000 classes. Rangan, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been, I think, 18 months in the making to get you here, but we're very, very happy and uh, welcome. Thank you so much, Chase. I'm a big fan. I'm uh, pretty excited to be on your show, so thank you. Well, speaking of shows, uh, before we get into the uh, uh, intros, I'll call it. Um, big fan of your show, and wow, what a force of nature! That thing is like it's the number one 
health show uh, in the UK, and I've seen it at the top of the, the podcast charts quite a bit over the past year. So you've got your own uh, show that is very, very impressive, and we're grateful to have you here. Hey, not at all. I, I, you know, as we were just saying, I love doing my podcast. I think podcasting is just an incredible medium. And I think the fact that podcasting is blowing up and exploding across the planet, I think really speaks to what it is. I think for me, podcasting is, it's like a modern day campfire, isn't it? It's, it's the connection that we're missing in our real lives that we're kind of getting when we go on our walks or we're washing dishes or whatever. We hear like these, I think, intimate conversations that people are having on their podcasts and truly having my show. Yes, I know it helps lots of people, but I've got to say it's really helped me. Like I feel I've discovered so much more about who I am through having this weekly podcast. And uh, yeah, I don't do it because it's successful. I always ask myself the question, uh, with lots of things in life, would you still be doing this if nobody was watching you? And honestly, with podcasting, I genuinely believe I would be. I think this is something I do, yes, for the audience, but I also do it for myself. Well, there was a couple of clues about some of the things that I want to speak with you about in your answer there. And uh, But before we get into that, before I start pressing you, for all your wisdom, uh, for those, the handful of listeners who may be new to you or your work, I was wondering if you could start off our show by just telling a little bit uh, about yourself, your focus, your area of interest, um, the fact that you are a doctor and that you have, you're, you're also an entrepreneur. I think that's fascinating, but give us a little background uh, to get us started today. Yeah, so as we speak, I've been a practicing medical doctor for almost 21 years now, so a long time. And, you know, I grew up in a family of Indian immigrants to the UK in the 1960s. And like many Indian immigrants, um, you know, they they prioritize academic success. And many of us grow up in families where really the only two or three options available to us are medicine, law, or engineering. That is the reality, you know, that's, you know, I've, I've learned as a parent myself, having been around the UK filming documentaries, I've really, I've really seen that as a child, what you're exposed to hugely determines your reality and what you think is possible in the world. So for me, I was surrounded by doctors with my dad and his friends. So yeah, I ended up becoming a doctor. Now, yes, I... I've always been drawn to caring for other people. I know it's almost a cliche, but it really is true. I think I learned that from my mother, who was always very good at looking after people. So I think medicine was the right move for me back then. But honestly, if I knew why I did it when I was 17 or 18, I honestly don't know. That's the truth. It's not the answer that people want to hear from doctors, but that's the honest truth. Now, over the last 10 years, I found my passion within medicine, but it took me some time. And so my whole thing is about trying to really help people understand that the way they live their life day to day massively influences the way they feel now, but also their overall health to the point where I would say 80 to 90% of what we see as medical doctors is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles, right? That much. So, you know, I've been through lots of experiences in my life, but essentially, in 2015, BBC One, the biggest uh, channel, uh, TV channel in the UK, chose me 
uh, to host a brand new show called Doctor in the House. And basically on that show, I would live alongside families for maybe four to six weeks. They all had chronic health problems. And it pretty much helped every family either reverse their problems or significantly improve them. And all I did was I helped them make small changes to their lifestyle. I didn't prescribe any medication. It was all done naturally. And it really showed a lot of people what is possible when we pay attention to our lifestyle. So that was my first, um, I guess the first time I had a big public profile and I was able to understand that through the media, you can actually really impact positive change in the world. And you know, I did two series of that show. It's been shown in 70 countries around the world. But that's led to me, you know, having books out there. Um, you know, I've written a book a year for the last five years, and I started my own podcast maybe four and a half years ago, nearly. And I'm just committed. You know, my my stated mission is I want to help improve the lives of a hundred million people over the course of my career. And in some ways, I have no way of measuring that. And in some ways, that doesn't really matter. It's just an aspirational goal that helps me decide where I'm going to put my attention and my energy. When opportunities come in, my question is, well, will this help me get to 100 million or will it not? And that doesn't mean there's no value in helping one individual person. Of course there is. But time is limited. There's only so much we can do. So I guess my main mission with everything I do is to really help every single individual believe and understand that they can be the architect of their own health and happiness. And that's my goal is to inspire them and give them practical tools that that basically whether you are rich or you're poor, to me, it doesn't matter. I wanna come up with a health advice and life advice that's gonna work for you. It's very, very important to me. So a lot more I could say there, Chase, but that's kind of like a rough overview. I hope that's clear. Oh, it's brilliant, brilliant. And uh, again, you've dropped a, a handful of hints that I'm going to do my best to uncover over the course of our conversation today. And uh, toward that end, I would like to start with the idea that you mentioned around podcasting and media as an opportunity to, um, I'll say push your message, but I think it's probably maybe better set, said in supporting the 100 million people and helping the 100 million people as a part of your goal. So it's fascinating to me that you, through the pressures of convention, of family, and presumably some of your own desire, you pursued medicine. But what's more interesting is the fact that you're now not just a doctor. You're a doctor, you're a TV host, you're a podcast host, you're an author. And I'm wondering if you can comment on and this, this would be true for anyone in any profession. If you're a lawyer, a doctor, um, a shoe salesman, a shoe uh, saleswoman, if you have any job, we now, largely on the back of wanting to expand the reach of our impact, you now have a half a dozen jobs. And whether you think of them as jobs or roles or opportunities, I think that's interesting. And I was hoping you could talk to me a little bit about the idea that you're more than just a doctor. Was that natural to you? Did you just pull on that thread because of this big vision and mission that you had for yourself? Or when did you did you awaken to this opportunity? I think for me, what happened was I was very much 
like a lot of us, a result of my childhood and my conditioning. So it's not that I'm not proud of going to medical school. Yes, I was, but it was my norm. All my peers were doing that. So actually, for me, it was kind of no big deal. It was just like, well, everyone kind of goes to medical school or law school. Yeah, I'm going to medical school. Now, I remember when I was at university, I spent a lot of time uh, you know, I'm a very keen musician. I had a band at university. We'd play a lot. And I remember in third year of medical school coming back for the Christmas holidays. And I told my parents, hey, guys, I'm going to, f- I was doing an honors degree in immunology that year as a, just as part of my medical degree. I said, look, I think I'm going to quit at the end of the year. I get my immunology degree and then I'm going to go on the road with my band. And I remember my dad wouldn't talk to me. My mum had to keep the peace between my dad and me. And, you know, Chase, I'm not reflecting on that for a long time, but I actually think that was the first expression of some kind of discontent that was this my choice or was this a sort of passive choice? I don't think I knew what to do with that. I don't think I necessarily thought I was going to quit, but I think I was just pushing back a little bit and saying, hey, listen, what does this look like if I say I'm going to quit? Anyway, my mom said, hey, listen, why don't you just finish medical school? I know you want to be a musician. You want to go on the roads. Just get your medical degree and then do it. Now, where does that go to? What, what you, you asked me, when did I almost awaken to these possibilities? Mm-hmm. The truth is, is that it was a couple of serious life events. So I was a doctor, I was working in hospital medicine, but I was getting really frustrated. I thought, I did my specialist exams, I was gonna, I was working in kidney medicine, and I thought, I can't spend the rest of my career just seeing kidneys. Like, I, I'm a people person. I thought, I wanna get to know people. I wanna, I wanna see different symptoms in different parts of the body and see how they interact with each other. So I took the step to move from specialist to general practice. And again, my dad was a bit confused. He was like, well, why would you do all your specialist exams and then become, I think in dad's head, a mere generalist. But but to me, I wanted to see everything and see how everything connected. So a couple of things happened. One day in my career, I remember at the end of my day looking at my patient list and I I saw, look, I've seen maybe 40, 45 patients today. How many have I really helped? And honestly, Chase, I thought 20% of these people I've really helped, the other 80%, I've just given them either a medication that's going to just be like a sticking plaster. I have sent them off for a test. I, I, I knew I hadn't really helped them understand what was going on. And I knew that they would be back. And I thought, I can't do this for 40 years. There must be something more than this. Then in 2010, my son, when he was six months old, he nearly died when we were on holiday in France. He had a convulsion. He stopped moving. And ultimately, it was a all caused by a preventable vitamin deficiency. And as a doctor, I thought, I've been to one of Europe's best medical schools. I've got specialist exams. I have an immunology degree. I've got uh, general practitioner qualifications. Yet my son nearly died off a preventable vitamin deficiency. I had a lot of guilt with that chase, if I'm honest, a lot of guilt. And as my son was being discharged from the hospital in France, I made myself a vow that 
I'm going to get my son back to full health as if this had never happened. So I started to study nutrition and vitamins and well-being and all the tools I learned, I applied with my son. And he is a thriving, happy, healthy 11-year-old boy today. I applied the same tools with myself and my family. I've never felt as good. And then I would do it with my patients. And I realized that there's so much that we never learned at medical school that we need to help people today. You know, the model of care we're taught at medical school helps for acute problems, for heart attacks, for pneumonias, for car crashes. We're brilliant. But for these chronic lifestyle type conditions, we're just not as good. So that's a brief history of my journey. And then the truth is, for many years, I cared for my dad. And my dad died in 2013. So that was a big hole for me in my life. Yes, emotionally, but also physically, because I would see dad three times a day for years. And this opportunity came up. I was working in this GP practice. And the practice manager sent an email to say, hey, look, the BBC are looking for a new doctor to host a show. The whole concept is what happens if you have more than 10 minutes with your patients? I thought, well, that sounds interesting. If you have more than 10 minutes, you could do so much. So in my lunch break, I phoned up this number, spoke to the studio in London. I'd never been on television before. They gave me an interview There were three months of kind of auditions and uh, various screen tests and things. And the truth is, Chase, honestly, I didn't prepare for a single one because I just thought, look, I'm just going to be myself. It's either what they want or it's not what they want. But I don't want to pretend to be someone who I'm not just to get on television. And then three months later, I find out that they've gone through, I think, maybe 1,500 doctors and they chose me. So I ended up doing this series, a a primetime series on the biggest TV channel in the country. So I have, so that was my first experience in media. There was no plan chase. I ended up just being given this opportunity. And through that, I learned about the power of media. So there's a lot there. I've tried to shorten the story. No, don't. The the long form is why we're here. We're here for it. So obviously there's a lot to unpack there. Um, the, the concept of applying tools beyond the traditional path is something that's relevant to every single listener here, regardless of their profession or regardless of their aspirations. The fact that you were able to, for a moment, put all of the inputs on pause through the experience that you had with your son, for example, and say, wait a minute, there has to be a better way. And I'm curious if when you did that, this is a, for what it's worth, this is a pattern that's very popular with the guests on the show, whether it's, you know, Sir Richard Branson or Damon John from Shark Tank, there's this moment where, and sometimes it's, it's a bunch of moments that aggregate over time, but for simplifications purposes, that there's a moment where you're like, wait a minute, there's, there's more than what I am, have been traditionally fed that I could be doing. And there's a tendency, you know, if you are a carpenter and you, your tool is a hammer that everything starts to look like a nail. And if you're a physician, you know, you have a set of tools to prescribe, you have medications, you have, you know, the prescriptions, you have therapy that you can send people to, but I'm fascinated by a willingness, probably despite your peers, 
when you start mm-hmm. studying, you know, household remedies and things like happiness and, you know, go back to the premise of the TV show, lifestyle changes relative to your peers in specialized medicine. Were you an outsider? Was that difficult? Were you challenged? Was that seen as, as some sort of mild revolt? Yeah, it's, it's, I think when, when Doctor in the House came out in 2015, um, you know, the, the 99% of the feedback was fantastic, but there were some conventional medics who pushed back a bit. And I found that very confusing, actually. I found that really confusing. I thought, well, you've just seen that all these families have got better. I've not used a single medication. Like, this is a BBC documentary. We've shown everything. Nothing has been hidden. Like, this has not been stage this is like a real life they were following me with these families and we told that story um yeah i would say it was unconventional at the time very unconventional i don't think there had been a show like that maybe anywhere but certainly in the uk at that point and i at that time chase i didn't care really you know i i was really affected by criticism that for sure like it would really bring me down and that is something I don't really feel anymore because I realize now looking back that came from an insecurity about how I felt about myself. And I've realized that when you become truly secure in who you are, actually the praise doesn't go to your head and the criticism doesn't bring you down either. Whereas in the past, it was like a big roller coaster. So yeah, it was unconventional compared to the norm, but I really believed in what I was doing. I knew it worked. And again, this wider question is, you know, do human beings need that adversity to go through until they come out the other side with that newfound determination? My son getting sick, I was like, listen, nothing matters. The only thing that matters to me is to get him back. I'm going to learn whatever I need to do to do that. And when you see the, the results, when you see the improvements, and I see them with my patients, I thought, well, the thing is, the reason doctors aren't doing this it's because they've not been trained to do this. They're literally trained in a very reductionist model, which is diagnose the condition, give a pharmaceutical treatment, by and large. Now, I understand like that's how I was trained, but I had life events pose challenges to me that I then had to come up with new answers for. So yeah, there was a bit of pushback, but there isn't now, right? This is the amazing thing, Chase. I've now, I've, I've created with a colleague uh, a course called Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine that is fully accredited by the Royal College of GPs in London. And we've trained maybe 3,000 doctors across the globe now in the sort of things I talk about. So sometimes, you know, you've just got to go for what you believe in. And actually, time, you know, it's hard to say, but I think there's a growing movement now in the UK certainly, and around the world where they're understanding that actually our lifestyle plays much more of a role in our health than we actually thought. So yes, there was pushback. Yes, the the pushback sometimes bothered me, but it didn't bother me enough to stop. Like, I know this works. I've experienced it myself. I've seen it with my son. I've seen it with my patients. And you mentioned at the start, right, that as well as a doctor, I'm also a podcast host, an author, a TV presenter sometimes. But actually, I'm still a doctor. Because from what I understand, the original meaning of doctor is an educator. When I went to medical school, I thought I was going to learn the skills that I would need to help my patients get better. 
But if 80 to 90% of what we are, you know, seeing as doctors is related to our collective modern lifestyles, well, if I can educate people and inspire them through my books and through my podcast, and, you know, I probably get 200, 250 DMs a week of people telling me, oh, I heard that show, my depression's much better. I can. I've, I got your third book. I'm no longer suffering with anxiety. I know how to manage it. My mum reversed her type two diabetes because of something she heard about on your books. Then I think, well, I'm still being a doctor, right? I'm just not being a doctor in the conventional setting. I'm. I'm helping people heal. I'm helping people uh, empower themselves, but through different mediums. And this is a question, Chase. I've been asking myself a lot over the last year because. I'm still practicing, but it's hard to keep practicing. You know, putting out a podcast each week is like a full-time job, right? You know, researching, <laughs> recording, you, you know the drill. Oh, yeah. Um, I write a book every year. I, I, I teach doctors. And I think, well, maybe, maybe it's getting close to the time for a year or two, at least. Maybe I stop practicing at least temporarily because, look, what can I see in one day as a doctor? like maybe 30 patients. Well, that even that is too much. Let's say I could see 30 or 40 people in a day. Well, you know, the reach I have with my books and my podcast dwarfs that significantly. So I kind of still feel I'm being a doctor, but maybe not in the way that people traditionally associate with a doctor. And therein lies what I believe is one of the biggest secrets that this show that I seek to unlock is that the future there are old patterns and there are new patterns. And the old pattern is not going, you know, what got us to that place is not what's going to get us to the next, yeah. um, you know, level of cultural consciousness or personal or, or overall cultural impact, which I think is fascinating. So we've got two clear themes <clears throat> emerging here in the show, in our conversation. One is the, the theme of your particular journey as it relates to um, you know, medicine, but it's very, uh, I think it's very obvious for anyone who's listening in whatever profession you're in that there are, you know, it's not just the core things. It's all this extra stuff that we are, we are, what we can do that we bring that we, if we show up with our full selves in this channel as a doctor, that we can have greater impact. We can be more authentic to ourselves. You, you know, you can, there's a, it's basically a growth versus a fixed mindset within our particular channel. <clears throat> and then a separate thread that is emerging, which I want to embark on uh, momentarily here, which is the science of what you have learned in, for example, living with these families and the opportunities that are available to heal and strengthen ourselves with very traditional, as you call it, I'll just use your word, lifestyle changes. So we've got two very clear threads here. What I want to do now is I want to put our arms around and for a moment, press pause on the you as exploring your, your role as a physician and, and how you've expanded it and essentially redefined that part of yourself. I think that's fascinating. I got a couple questions here and then I'm going to lock that down. I want to go on to the actual experiences that you have with treating depression, anxiety, many of these things that you've talked about in what would be non-traditional medical ways in the lifestyle changes. So in order to wrap up, the, um, my, my lines of questions, uh, on, on topic one, was there a moment when <clears throat> you realized 
this is referring to this idea that you just said about, I wonder if I should stop practicing. I'm curious about the labels that we give ourselves. Cause right now there's someone listening who is a lawyer and they say, well, what if I start this business? Am I still a lawyer? The side hustle, for example, am I still a lawyer? Or there's um, a mother of three who's at home and says, okay, if I start this, uh, an enterprise from my kitchen counter, am I an entrepreneur or am I still a mother? So I'm wondering what role the label that you have given yourself, what role that plays and does it matter? Are you still Dr. Rangan or do you just at that point, does it not matter? And the people who encounter you and what you're teaching and preaching and sharing and educating and, and helping, you know, how important is the doctor moniker, moniker and how important should people be, should people be attached to the identity yeah. that they had, or they have to do they have to shed that identity to become the next version of themselves? Yeah, this is this is a great question, Chase. And I, I actually explore this in chapter one of my new book on happiness, basically, because I think labels are very, very limiting. They're very, very limiting. And we get conditioned, a lot of these labels are given to us by society, right? And I think if you understand that they're given to you by society, I think that's okay. The problem is when we cling too tightly to those labels and we think that's who we are, right? So I actually think it comes down to your values more than your labels. So for example, in the book I write about me as a doctor, if I cling too tightly to that label as a doctor, then I kind of put myself in a very restrictive position. Because what is to happen if I got fired as my job as a doctor? Then I got a big problem because my identity is being a doctor, so I've now been fired. So I really struggle. What happens if I get sick and I can't work anymore as a doctor? Oh man, now we've got a big problem. What happens when I retire from being a doctor? This is what happens to many people when they retire. Their sense of who they are completely vanishes and they really, really struggle, right? And that's because we cling too tightly to these labels as I probably did in the past. What about me as a father, right? I'm, I'm a father of two kids, but being a father is not who I am. It's a role that I play, right? It's a very important role to me, but I have seen this in some of my patients before, like some mothers who their whole identity is being a mum. And then let's say when one of their childs, one of their children is a teenager and they have an argument and say, you're a rubbish mum. They come in feeling really low, like really low as if their whole identity has been shattered. Now, the way I think it's much more healthy for us to think, think about this is what are your core values, right? So for me, my three core values as we are having this conversation, because I'm always tweaking and seeing, do these still fit right for me? But at the moment, they are integrity, curiosity, and compassion. I think these are the three values that really sum up who I am and how I like to be out there in the world. And so therefore, even if I was to lose my job as a doctor, I can still behave with integrity, curiosity, and compassion. And I feel now, I bring those three qualities to my job as a traditional doctor, to my role as a podcast host, to my role as a father, to my role as a author. These are the values. And, and I think they're just much more valid and they free us from this kind of 
entrapment of, of having to live up to certain labels. Because a lot of people also, like you mentioned lawyers, right? It's just like medicine. Loads of people go into law because they're good academically at school, right? But not because they love law. Same in medicine. I've got friends who are doctors who they're in the wrong job, but in their 40s now, they've got a mortgage, they've got school fees, they've got a car lease. And the way they compensate for that discomfort with their job is by getting drunk every weekend, right? Because actually they don't enjoy who they are Monday to Friday. So they have to actually uh, release that at the weekend, right? I'm not saying that's for everyone, but interestingly enough, like on my podcast, I know we've got a mutual friend in Rich Roll. Rich used to be a lawyer, right? He's <laughs> yes. like that. I've had, I, I've had Mel Robbins. Yeah. Mel Robbins came on the show. Mel used to be a lawyer. Now she's not. Dan Pink was in the studio a couple of weeks ago. Another lawyer who isn't anymore. And it's really fascinating to me. Law comes up a lot in terms of my guests. I kind of feel, is there something about law that means a lot of people end up leaving it? <laughs> to become creators. I don't know. That's not a scientific experiment. That's just my my experience. But I think that whole idea of labels and identity and values is really important for people to sit with. And you asked me, is the, is the doctor label important to me? Honestly, no. I'd rather get rid of it. I don't like the way that um, there's this hierarchy in society where we put doctors on a pedestal it's like, oh, what the doctor says, that's what I should do. I've never liked that, right? I've always seen my patients as equals, as partners with me. Um, and I think here's the reality, though. The reality is much of society has been conditioned to believe that actually the word of a medical doctor has incredible value. So therefore, I'm being slightly naive here because maybe the reason why so many people seem to resonate and connect with my message is because I'm a medical doctor. So in their heads, there's a there's there's a kind of um, there's a respectability, and there's a oh that you know what he says must be true because he's a medical doctor. Now I don't like that, but also I recognise that that may well be the case for many people in society. So did that did that answer your question, Chase? It did. It did. And part of the takeaway, if I was to summarise and you know try and reduce it to one line, it would be it's complicated. <laughs> but, the, but the concept is, <clears throat> and this is the reason I asked the question and you cited many of our dear, dear mutual friends, Rich is just awesome. We're brothers from another mother. Yeah, the, he's great. The, the idea of, especially early in life, we latch onto a moniker. And then at some point, most of the folks who have gone on to what I would call be the closest version to the best version of themselves, they have a realization that the labels that they have used are are constraining in many ways. Mm. And to me, that's part of the message that I want people to hear and take away from this particular show with you is that you had the title, obviously one of the highest titles, monikers in the land, right? Doctor, as you said, whether for better or worse, we've been conditioned to take that word. And you're still willing to part with that on the, uh, on the belief, or I'll call it the understanding, that that actually doesn't define you. And it's through yeah. your actions, through integrity, curiosity, and compassion, that you are moving through the world. And my hope is that this gives others out there courage 
to expand yeah. what's possible in their lives, to look at how identities either serve or mostly what I find is they and, don't serve us. Yeah. Can, can I, please yeah, do. I, I was going to say, Chase, like you mentioned at the start, what, maybe there's a lawyer or someone listening or watching at the moment who thinks, well, if I set up a side business, am I still a lawyer or am I something else? And I would say, you don't even need to ask yourself that question. It doesn't matter. You know, in one part of your life, maybe you're a lawyer, maybe that pays the bills at the moment. Maybe that's how you put food on the table. But in another part of your life, you're doing something completely different. Where did we ever get the idea that we can only be one thing? Like I, I feel really pleased um, that, you know, the kids, they get asked at school, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I find a lot of the time with my kids, I'm trying to unschool what what messages they're getting at school. And I say that with the greatest respect to teachers. I have a lot of respect. I think all the teachers I know are trying to do the best that they can within a system that I think in many ways is very outdated. And, you know, my kids say, well, why'd they ask me what I want to be? Maybe I want to do many things. And I feel that I'm at least in my family showcasing them. I say, well, daddy does, what does daddy do? Daddy's a doctor. He's a podcast host. He's an author. He's a TV presenter. He's a public speaker you don't have to define yourself. You know, I'm a songwriter. I just don't do anything in public with it. But that's also part of who I am. I love sitting there singing, writing songs and performing, right? So we've got one life. Why can't we have this rich, multifaceted life where we can engage in various passions? Now, of course, not everyone can, right? Some people, life is tough. They've got financial commitments and they've got pressures, which means at that time in your life, maybe you can't engage in those things. I, I know what that's like. For 15 years, I cared for my dad. I wasn't engaging in my passions. I was, you know, I don't know, looking back, there was such a stressful period where I didn't have any time to engage in the things that I wanted to. And actually, here's the other thing, Chase, I want to say for people is it's never too late, right? It is never too late. When when my dad died in 2013, and when I got on uh, on television in 2015, I remember thinking, "This is my old insecurities." Wow, you know, I've been wanting to talk about this lifestyle message for years, but I've not had an opportunity. You know, and it's going to be very hard to have my voice heard because there's a lot of people who've been doing this for years. But it's simply not true. A, it's not a competition, which uh, was took me a while to realize that because of my conditioning as a child. There's room for everyone to spread their message in their way and, you know, indulge in their creative side however they want to. Um, and and it, it doesn't matter when, you know, maybe you have to wait till you're 50 or 55 or 60. You can still make different decisions. You don't have to be defined by what you said you were going to be when you were 18 years old, when you left school or you were going to college. That doesn't have to define you. It's just a moment in your life. And that is one of the most freeing things, I think, for us. Instead of this pressure as a child, what are you going to be? What are you going to do at college? What are you going to study? What's your job going to be? I hope we're moving into a new you know, a new era where actually people go, well, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm going to be more than one thing. And um, certainly that's my sense, Chase. Do you get that sense that things are changing? I mean, I really do. Absolutely. And that is, you know, you just put the bow that I was hoping to have on this part of our conversation because it's precisely that. That is one of the things that I'm interested in exploring is if the old pattern is life is short, you got to hurry. 
the new pattern is life is long. If our parents had one job and we will have five, the next generation will have five at the same time. And what does that look like? How can we, you know, approach all of this with a growth mindset? Most of the careers that most of the people who are listening to this show right now do not even exist yet today. They are emerging areas of opportunity and discovery. And so this idea that we have to um, rush to the thing, do that thing for 40 years, get the gold watch and retire, that's just absolutely outdated. And whether you're 14 or 54, it's the opportunity to start anew begins now and can or can begin now if it's something that you truly want. And I think it's it's very insightful. And I'm, I'm glad you shared that you had those feelings when you were, you know, shifting gears from, you know, being a general practitioner to being a general practitioner and a TV host, arguably, you know, later in life than most TV hosts get started at 20 or 25 yeah. or so. Uh, I, I believe deeply in that. And um, and can I, you know, can I, please do. Yeah. This is your show. Well, it's always hard on zoom, isn't it? With the uh, slight delay, you never <laughs> want to talk over someone, but I was just going to say that, you know, it is never too late. And I don't know, it's, um, you know, we, we put ourselves in these boxes sometimes that we think we can't escape from that we can't see a way out. And I and my hope is that people, you know, they don't have to wait for that really significant adverse life event where a close family member, you know, dies or someone gets a health complaint where they then go, what am I doing with my life? You know, so that's one, one thing I want to just say, I, you don't have to wait for that. You can make small changes now. You don't even have to do it in public, right? Let's say you have a job as a lawyer, but you also love poetry or taking photographs. Well, you can do that in the evenings and at weekends. It's still valid, even if you know you don't become Chase Jarvis, right? It's still valid. It still feeds that part of you. And, and the other thing, Chase, I wanted to respond to was, yeah, a lot of TV hosts or TV presenters, it happens in their 20s. With me, you know, it happens maybe mid to late 30s. And you know what? I'm so glad it happened then. Why? Because I've been in that media game for a while. Now, I don't live in London for many reasons. I don't want to get sucked into that kind of, you know, I know what that can be like in London, very intense, very competitive. I'm not interested. I'm happily married. I love spending time with my kids. I'm glad that that element of profile happened when I was happily married and settled with kids. Because I think a lot of the time when people, when that happens to them in their 20s, and I think it would have happened to me in my 20s, you you make some poor decisions, right? Because yes. it can go to your heads, right? Yeah. And you can get tempted by all kinds of things. So instead of thinking, oh man, I, what if this happened earlier? I'd be a lot further ahead in my career. I'm like, no, no, no. You can always change the perspective on anything in life. That's a big part of my take on happiness is that we get to choose the perspective we take on anything. And, and with that perspective, that determines the story we put on it. That determines how we feel about it. For me, I'm delighted this didn't happen to me in my 20s. And it happened later on in life because I feel I'm much better, much more grounded and better able to equip with it now. Do you know what I mean? I think that's quite an important I, point. 
I think it's a massively important point. And to me, that that is a, a you know an absolute key takeaway for anyone, whether you're again sitting in traffic right now on a walking path, making dinner, whatever, wherever you are, just pause and reflect on that. This it's not sort of what happens to us, it's the attitude and the point of view that we bring. And I, I do want to shift gears to that other thread, the thread of what you have learned and what we can learn in turn from um, these lifestyle changes and particularly with your your new book, um, Happy Mind, Happy Life. And before we do, though, just to, to close the loop, you mentioned this idea of life changing in some ways, you know, potentially catastrophic events, your story with your son. For me, it was my gr- two stages. One, my grandfather dropped dead of a heart attack on the garage floor. And that's the reason I was I was given his cameras. That is largely the reason I am a photographer today. And then I also was nearly killed in an avalanche in Alaska, which I chronicled in great detail in my book that helped me break free from the moniker of just being a photographer, there were so many other things that I wanted to do in life. Also, podcast host, author, entrepreneur, whatnot. And if, you know, to the listeners, you just heard Dr. Rangan say that, gosh, it doesn't, I wish it didn't take that, you know, near catastrophic event with my son. And I am here to emphasize, I wish that I didn't wait for my grandfather's death. That I didn't wait to almost die myself in order to make these changes. So, We'll, we'll consider that wrapped up and now taking that sort of that energy and I wish I didn't to now, cool, let's agree that we're at least we've, <clears throat> we've suspended for a moment the beliefs or the, the um, conditioning of our listeners. And I would like to now explore what you have seen and what you have done for patients who are willing to make lifestyle changes rather than take a pill or get a surgery and what some of the biggest takeaways that you have from those experiences, both firsthand and guiding others through this process. Talk to me about, talk to, sorry, talk to me about what are the, what are the key patterns that you've seen? You identified one in, in, in your last sort of statement there around this sort of a, a mindset shift. Talk to me about the role that the mind plays in uh, in our understanding that we are actually, we play a key role in it, that the words that we say to ourselves are important and our actions that, that uh, w- what actions we can uh, take in order to, to be our best self. So one of my key learnings in my career has been that most of what we see as doctors now is related to the way we're living. And for many years, I've spoken about what I call these four key pillars of health, food, movement, sleep, and relaxation. And I say to people, listen, small changes in these four areas will make a huge difference for your overall well-being. You don't need a huge overhaul. You just need to make a few simple, sustainable changes. But then for the past few years, Chase, I've been wondering, is lifestyle really the root cause? Or is there something that's even more, what I say, upstream to lifestyle? And I thought about my career. I thought about my patients. I went into the research. And there absolutely is. The root cause for many of us 
is happiness. It's our mental well-being. People who are happy in their lives and with their lives are healthier. There's really robust research showing that. Now, there's two key reasons for that. One of the reasons is that when you feel happier and more content, you naturally make better lifestyle choices. If you like your life, right, and you like what you do, you're less likely to need to comfort eat and have lots of sugar or lots of ice cream to compensate for your discomfort with your life. You're less likely to need a whole bottle of wine every evening to deal with the problems and frustrations in your life, right? So that's one thread. But it's not just that. The other thread is even when you account for the same lifestyle, people who feel happier are still healthier and they live longer. And there was this beautiful study where they followed nuns over their entire life. And they had the same lifestyle, same diet, same amount of exercise, same sleep. And as they studied, they saw clearly the happier nuns, they were healthier and they live longer. And so for me, the question then is, well, what is happiness, right? Because happiness is a term that I think if you say it to 10 different people, they'll come up with uh, 10, different, 10 different interpretations of that term. Happiness to me is not about having a smile on your face the whole time. It's not about you know waiting for everything to be perfect in your life, no one to treat you badly, the world to be just the way you want it. If you need that to happen in order to feel happy, you're going to you're going to be waiting a long long time. So happiness really is an inside job. It's about perspective and for me, what I created in this new book is a is a is a new definition of happiness that I think is practical. I've called it core happiness and there's three legs of this core happiness stool and each of these legs can be worked on and strengthened. And the three legs are alignment, contentment and control. And I contend for people that actually, just as if you do bicep curls every day in the gym, you're going to get stronger biceps. If you work on strengthening these three legs of the core happiness stool, you're going to be happier. You know, you're going to be happier more often. And it's not difficult to strengthen those legs, right? The first like alignment you know, alignment is when the person who you are inside and the person who you are being out there in the world are one and the same. So when your inner values and your external actions start to match up, right? We covered identity before in labels. This really speaks to this alignment, you know, are you behaving in the world in the way that you truly are, right? And this takes the pressure off you. If you haven't yet quit your nine to five to you know, be a podcast host or be an artist, that's okay, right? If you know your values and you're living in accordance with those values, you're still living a meaningful life. And the reason I, I'm so passionate about this piece is because a lot of people talk about, oh, it's not about happiness, it's about meaning and purpose. And I'm big fans of meaning and purpose, but I, for me, at least, through, through the lens I look at happiness, it's not the same thing. I think meaning and purpose is a necessary ingredient for happiness, but it's not happiness in and of itself. And, you know, there's, there's a few examples I could use to sort of express that, but I prefer people to think about values because let's say you are in a job that you hate at the moment. You're in a call center. You dream about being an artist, but that's what pays your bills at the moment. Well, let's say your value, one of your values is kindness. Well, if 
you're kind to the barista when you order your coffee in the morning, if you're kind to the bus driver on your way to work, if you're kind to your work colleagues when you're there, sure, you may not love your job, but you're still living a life of meaning. You're still living in alignment with who you are. And the more you do that, the more likely it is that you're going to find those new opportunities that mean, yeah, you know what? I can quit that job. I can take the leap. I can become that artist or whatever I want to be. So take the pressure of yourself and go down to value. So that's one piece. The second leg is contentment. What are those things in your life that truly make you feel content and feel at peace? And then the third leg is control. Right. This is not about controlling the world. Again, I thought long and hard chase about this word because that can be misinterpreted as well. But I went with it. I I tested it on my patients, on my community, my friends. And people seem to get it. This is not about controlling external events. You cannot control what's going to happen in the world. I think the last two years have shown us that. This is about a sense of control. What can you do on a daily basis that gives you that sense of control over your life? And that could be you know, a little ritual in the morning. It could be a workout, some meditation, seeing your friends, journaling, taking photos, right? Something that you, that is under your control that you do regularly to give you that sense of control. So there's a lot of simple practical tips that I write about, about how you can work on these three things. Um, But that's kind of the broad overview. I think one of my one of my favorite tips. Can I share that? Can I share Please. one of my favorite this is, tips? Yeah, this is this is brilliant. Because th- th- there's a whole chapter in the book on this. The whole of chapter five is, is called Seek Out Friction. And this has probably had the biggest impact on my own feelings of contentment and happiness than anything else. And it's this idea that whenever you interact with someone socially, and something is bothering you. Let's say you don't like an email that you received from a colleague or your boss. Instead of wishing that they would change and thinking, I can't believe they did this, how can you rewrite that story to choose what I call a happiness story? Now, this is a very trainable skill, right? You just need to practice. It's not difficult. You just need to commit to it. And I do this every day to the point now where I do it automatically, where I will reframe events in the moment, you know, and, and, and it changes how I feel about them. So let's say someone who's listening or watching now, um, let's say they've got an email from their boss that they don't like. They think, I can't believe they wrote that tone like that. Do they not know I worked last weekend? I've been doing this job for five years. This is, this is negative self-talk, right? This is disempowering because ultimately what you're effectively saying is the actions of someone else that I have no control over I'm going to allow to influence my inner well-being. And I understand that that was me for much of my life, but I promise you, you can change this. You can change the story. You could be, well, what could be going on in my boss's life? Well, maybe my boss is under pressure from his or her boss and they're taking it out on me. Maybe my boss, um, maybe their child was up with earache last night and they're tired. It doesn't matter of the truth, right? For your happiness and your well-being, it's a really good skill to reframe that story. And I, I do this every day, anytime something bothers me in the day, which is getting quite rare, mate. I've been doing this for about five years now. Like it does happen. I'm not a saint. I'm not perfect, but I have the awareness when it does happen. And if you're thinking that this can only happen in trivial situations and not serious situations, 
I just want to share something. One of the most powerful conversations I've had in my entire life on my podcast was with Dr. Edith Eager. Now, Dr. Edith Eager, when I spoke to her about a year ago, she was 93 years old. When she was 16 years old, she was living in Eastern Europe and her family got a knock on the door. Her, her sister and her parents were put on a train to Auschwitz concentration camp. Within two hours of getting there, her parents were murdered. Later that day, she had to dance for the senior prison guards. And the first thing she said to me, Chase, was, I never forgot the last thing my mum said to me. She said to me, Edie, nobody can take from you the contents that you put inside your mind. So she said, when I was dancing, I wasn't dancing in Auschwitz. I was dancing in Budapest Opera House. There was a full house in front of me. There was an orchestra playing. I had a beautiful dress on. I thought, okay, that's pretty incredible. Then she said to me, while in Auschwitz, she started to see the prison guards as the prisoners. She said they were the ones who weren't free and living their life. In my mind, I was free. They weren't free. I thought, this is pretty incredible. And then the final thing she said to me was, Dr. Shashi, I can tell you, I've lived in Auschwitz. And I can say this to you, the greatest prison you will ever live inside is the prison you create inside your mind. I think about that every day. Whenever I'm struggling to reframe something, I say, well, listen, if Edith Eager can reframe her story in Auschwitz, in the hell of Auschwitz, well, you know what, Rongen, you can do this in your life. So I use that as inspiration for me. And and Chase, you know, to get philosophical, but there's a wider point here, which is what is truth, right? What is truth, right? Because if there's a couple, two partners who are having an argument, what happened in the argument? Well, it kind of depends who you ask. You ask one partner, they'll give you one story, walk around to the other side of the table, and they'll give you a different story, the other partner, same situation, two different perspectives. Psychologists did a study. They took a football fan, so uh, soccer fans in the UK, right? And they showed them the same incident from the game. And they asked them what happened. Different fans reported seeing different things from the same incident. So why am I, why am I sharing this? The point I'm trying to make is that every situation has multiple perspectives right? For your happiness and your well-being, if you can consistently choose what I call a happiness perspective, you will feel less stress in your body. You will feel less triggered, less angry. You'll make better choices, yes, for your health, but you'll also make better choices in your life because you're not coming from a place of fear and anger and frustration. You'll be coming more from a place of compassion and honesty and love. And I know this sounds really kind of, you know, idealistic. And yeah, is that realistic? I promise you from someone who spent their whole life having a victim mindset and thinking if people acted differently, I would be happier. In the last five years, I've completely changed that. So I'm now speaking to you, Chase, at a point in my life, I'm 44 years old. I've never felt this good. Like genuinely, I've never felt this good. I feel calm. I feel content. I feel at peace. And what's really changed is I don't allow any more external events 
to really change how I feel about myself. I'm not saying this is easy, right? It takes a bit of time. But I've got to say, a lot of those kind of uh, addictive behaviors that I may have had in the past, they've gone because all behaviors, this is one key thing I've learned in 20 years of medicine, Chase, is that all behaviors serve a role in life, right? If we're engaging in a behavior, there's a reason we're engaging that behavior. And a lot of the time as doctors, we give health advice, say, oh, you shouldn't drink alcohol, you shouldn't smoke, you should cut back on sugar. Sure, let's give advice, but I think it's missing a big piece. People are engaging in those behaviors because they need them on some level to cope with discomfort or the stress of their life. If we don't, if we don't, if we don't help people change the way they feel about themselves, they're going to keep jumping from, you know, in the book I call these junk happiness habits. They're not really feeding your long-term happiness. They give you a short-term hit. There's nothing wrong with them now and again. The problem is, is if you, if you engage in them too often, or you make the mistake in thinking they're really feeding your core happiness, that's when I think we run into problems. And you know, for much of my life, Chase, which is why I'm so passionate about this topic, I didn't feel good enough in who I was, right? Like the immigrant mentality is you got to do well at school. So if I came home from school with 19 out of 20, my parents would say, why didn't you get 20? If I came second in the class, they would say, well, who came top? Why didn't you come top? Right? Because they did it from a place of love. They had discrimination. They had problems. And so in their head, if their children can do really well at school, they're going to get a good job and have no problems in life. But here's the problem, right? There's two perspectives on every story. They did it from a place of love. But little Rongan, on the other hand, he takes on the belief at a young age that I'm only worthy of love when I get full marks, right? So you have this discomfort. Now on the outside, it looks as though I've been very, very successful. I was a, I'm was a doctor. You know, I've got four and now five best-selling books. Um, I've got a TV show. It all looks great on the outside. But until about five years ago, Chase, I'd say that on the inside, I actually felt pretty unhappy. I didn't realize I was feeling unhappy, maybe 10 years ago. But you would engage in, I don't know, sugar, gambling, drinking with your mates, whatever it might be, because you're trying to, you're trying to numb that feeling of discomfort. I didn't know that's why I did it. But what's interesting, Chase, is as I've healed that void, as I've worked on my alignment, my contentment and my control, I don't engage in those things anymore. And I've not tried to stop that I just have no need for them in my life anymore. So I hope that made sense to people. But I'm very I'm very passionate about this. A lot of our behaviors, they're there for a reason. If, you have, if you've tried using willpower and you can't stop it, I'm not sure willpower is the problem. Try and figure out what it's doing for you. Is it that you don't like your job, right? Is it that you're a lawyer and actually you really have got this creative side and you're not able to express that? Now, I'm not saying quit your job. What I am saying is maybe at the weekends or in the evenings, engage in that creative side, you know, live in alignment with who you really are. And I promise you some of those behaviors that you're trying to stop, like three hours on Instagram in the evening or online shopping or gambling or sugar, I promise you that those things will start to fade away as you no longer need them.
One of the things that I appreciate about your new book and what we're talking about for those listeners and watchers is uh, happy mind, happy life, the new science of mental well-being, is that there is some very practical advice in that book. And it's not just a big idea. It, it is a science-backed, um, controlled experiment uh, truth that you have prescribed a handful of very tactical approaches. Um, so I'll incur, I don't, I don't feel like we need to go into each of those, but I, I want to, um, I want to address a concern that a listener or a watcher may have that somehow reframing our stories into, you know, happiness ones is isn't somehow putting our head in the sand to the realities of modern life it, it, modern life it's not sort of um pretending that difficult moments don't exist so i'm hoping yeah. you can address that yeah that's a great point chase sure what i'm saying is this is this doesn't mean let's go back to that email from the boss right so let's say your boss has sent you a horrible email and you think that that's uncalled for and they should know better, right? What I'm saying when it comes to happiness, but also to make good decisions going forward, we make better decisions when we're not feeling emotionally reactive. So think about your brain in two parts, right? You've got your emotional brain, which is the primitive part of your brain that's been there for a long, long time. And you've got the more recent part of the human brain, what we call the prefrontal cortex, which is how we make logical, good, rational decisions. When you feel triggered by somebody else, when that email has really bothered you and you're like, man, I can't believe they did that. How annoying. You are not going to be in the best place to address that situation with your boss and change it. What often happens is that we, we respond from a place of reactivity. You know, we say, I can't believe you sent that, you should know better, all this, and that leads to more reactivity coming back. So what I'm saying is it's a two-stage process. The first stage is if you can, and you know, you don't have to reframe every event in your life, but it's a very good skill to practice to know that actually you have the ability to do that. If you reframe that to go, you know, I don't like that email, but you know, he must have had problems in his own life at that time to send it like that, right? What it does, it, it means that you keep your uh, logical brain online. So then you can actually send a really calm and reasonable email, say, hey, listen, you know, thanks so much for that. Have you got 10 minutes later this week where we can have a chat? Because there's just a couple of things I wanted to discuss with you if possible. You're gonna, you're much more likely to get change in life when you don't come from a place where you're constantly reacted, uh, where, you, where you're feeling reactive. So it's not about saying you should put up with poor behavior. Like let's say your partner doesn't treat you well, right? I'm I, What I'm saying to you, because I've experienced it myself and with my patients, that if you can train yourself to not get as triggered, because ultimately this is a, I guess this is a harsh truth that it took me, a long time to learn, we are responsible for our emotions, right? It's us, we're generating them. We think it's someone else, they behave that way. When I got married, right, 14 years ago, my mother-in-law would say to my um, 
would say to my wife sometimes, she would say, I'm not making you unhappy. You're choosing to make yourself unhappy. And it would really bother my wife, right? Uh, really trigger her. <laughs> but actually, she and I have come down to the realization that my wife's mother was absolutely correct. We are responsible for our emotions and you can train yourself. What, what, the problem is if, you're, if you don't believe that you're responsible for your emotions, it's very easy yeah. to go on around life thinking, oh man, I can't believe this happened to me. That person cut me up in the road. That's why I feel angry. That's why I needed three beers after work. It's not a very empowering place to be. It is a skill, right? It can take time, right? It's not easy if you spent your whole life not doing it. But you know, one of my favorite phrases, it's, it's actually my daughter's got her abbreviation off because I've told it to the kids so much. She, she's written it out for me at the back of the studio. Um, let's see if I can remember it word for word. It's the Viktor Frankl phrase. Um, between stimulus and response is a space. And in that space is our ability to choose our response. And with our response comes our freedom. Now, I know I didn't get that quite right. So please forgive me if you're a Viktor Frankl fan. But the essence is between any stressor in life and our response to that, there is a space we can choose how we respond how we how we respond but many of us react instinctively we don't have a space and i'm saying that as you train yourself to rewrite stories that space will start to expand so now when things happen i feel i feel like i've got an hour to make a decision in my head on how i'm going to respond even though the reality is i probably have a few seconds it's a trainable scale. You, as I say, you know, if you go to the gym every day, you're going to get stronger. If you train this skill every day, if you work out in what I call the social gym each day, use social friction as a way of learning about yourself, you will master your own emotions. You will start to understand yourself in a way that you never did before. And as you say, Chase, there's loads more practical, really practical tips in the book for people that don't cost any money. I'm really proud of this. Nothing in the book actually costs anyone any money to do. It just requires them to go, you know what? I I feel I could be happier than I currently am. I feel I could get more out of life than I currently am. And that's why I wrote it. Certainly in the UK, it's been out for 10 days as we have this conversation. And it, I've never had a reaction to this to any of my books. People are loving it and sharing it. And yeah, I'm delighted. I think it's my best piece of creative work to date. That's the truth, Chase. And I And why? It's not only the content. I pushed myself outside my comfort zone for this book. I really have. I've gone past the edges of where I feel comfortable. I've shared stuff about myself in a way that I've never shared before. Stuff that, you know, frankly, I would have been too insecure to share before. Like, what will people think of me? You know, a doctor in public should act in a certain way. That idea of label and identity, that was keeping me locked in a box. But as I freed myself, I go, no, yeah, I am a doctor. I'm a parent. I'm a podcast host. I've got all these roles in life. But ultimately, what am I? I'm an imperfect human trying to do the best that he can, just like everyone else. So I think that's what makes this book really special is that I have really shared stuff about me as well as dispensing you know, expert advice. Well, that's part of what I love about your approach and not just with this book, but you know, your previous books as well, where 
there's a certain humility which, which with which you've approached the material. And even if you if you do go watch, you know, Doctor in the House, this idea that you can we're all managing all of this stuff and doing everything all of the time is not possible. But how can you, you know, choose your values and then live in alignment with those values? How can you recognize what what you're saying is is, you know, it's very philosophical, right? How we choose to respond is ultimately key to what underpins our happiness. And just so it turns out that the link between happiness and health and longevity and well-being is is it's radically connected. Yeah. Um, and so thank you for for providing. And that is a very inspirational, uh, I think, lens and, and fair and, and reasonable and accurate lens on life that I truly believe has been missing. And it's been missing from the medical community. So you as a practicing medical doctor, having the willingness to share that, regardless of what your your peers may or may not say, I want to say personally say thank you. And the the quote for those folks that um, were interested, that was near perfect um, quoting of Viktor Frankl. Highly recommend the book "Man's Search for Meaning," one of the most profound books that that I've read. Austrian, I believe, Austrian psychologist Viktor Frankl. Um, well, as our time together is winding down and uh, as again, I'd like to redirect everybody back to happy mind, happy life, the new science of mental well-being. I want to ask if there are, as we wrap up, are, are there any patterns that you would advise people start to focus? Like, let's give them a, a, a simple takeaway right now. So as they're listening, wherever they are, what ought people listening and watching start to pay attention to first on their journey to happiness? Where would you invite people to look in the most, what I would just call low hanging fruit sort of way? Get us started. Yeah. And obviously our, our community is very good at purchasing books. And you know the book has come out in the UK. We're dropping this episode during your pub week here in the US, which is June. Uh, what's a way that we can start today and, you know, while the books, while the books on order coming to us. Yeah. In terms of practical tips, I think there's a very simple exercise that anyone can do in their life right now. Right. And there's two parts to it. The first one is write down three things that you think you could do weekly, regularly that would give you a deep sense of well-being and happiness in your life. Just just think of three things, right? Then on the next sheet of paper, imagine you're on your deathbed and look back on your life and ask yourself, what three things will I want to have done and achieved in my life? And then bring those two pieces of paper together and ask yourself, if I can do these three weekly happiness habits, Will I get the happy ending that I've just defined that I want at the end of my life? Now, it's a very simple exercise, but it's very, very powerful because what it does is bring intention to your life. You may say, for example, at the end of your life that you want to have spent quality time with your friends and family. And then you may look at your week and go, oh man, I never have any time for my friends and family because I'm too busy chasing this or chasing that or working. 
don't beat yourself up, right? This is not an exercise to make yourself feel guilty. It's an exercise to bring awareness to your life. And here's the other thing, right? We kind of know with a pretty high degree of certainty what you are going to say at the end of your life. Why? Because palliative care nurses tell us over and over again. There's an Australian palliative care nurse called Bronnie Care. She wrote a book called Five Regrets of the Dying. And, you know, what are the common things that people say at the end of their life? It's things like this. I wish I'd work less. I wish I spent more time with my friends and family. I wish I'd lived my life and not the life that other people expected of me. I wish I'd allowed myself to be happy. Right, so let's learn from these people at the end of their life. They all say the same things. If you're someone who's not living your life at the moment, that's okay. Many of us, we need to start some, you know, many of us, it takes us to 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 to kind of figure out what that is. But if you're getting an incline somewhere that your life is not your true life, the one that you were born here to live, that exercise will help bring that into sharp focus for you. In the book, there's loads of tips as well that are going to help you with that. So that's one thing I'd say. The other thing, Chase, I'd say, which I think is arguably one of the most important things these days. One of the reasons we find it so hard to live an authentic life and to understand when, where we're at and how we're feeling is because very few of us these days have solitude, intentional solitude with ourselves. We wake up and we're consuming email, social media, news, work, family, friends. There's all this incoming into our ears and our eyes from the outside world. Sure, that can be fine, but you also need time where there's no incoming and you allow your innermost thoughts and feelings to come up. So one of the most important things I do every day is I start off each day with a 30-minute morning routine. I know morning routines can be cliched. Like I, for some of my patients, I say, do it in the afternoon, do it in the evening, but have some time alone with your thoughts where you're not distracting yourself with Instagram or the news or something else. Sit there with a cup of coffee and don't look at your phone, right? And see what comes up for you because there will be all these feelings buried inside you that you are not allowing to come up because you're never spending any time alone. And look, this even applies to good content, right? Right? Even if you're consuming brilliant content like Chase's podcast or mine or other shows that you like, right? Well, even that, sometimes, you know what? Go for a walk with nothing in your ears and just listen to the birds and see what comes up for you because that's when you will hear your inner voice. That's when you'll start to make better decisions. Um, I mean, I could keep going on, Chase, but they're, they're kind of two big pieces for me that I Brilliant. think will really help people uh, just in their own lives. Brilliant. Thank you so much for being a guest on our show, helping us unlock the key to happiness, which as you've indicated in lots of your work and your podcast, other books, this relationship between happiness and health is inextricably tied. And for those who are suffering, there's a handful of very simple lifestyle changes that you can make. Uh, the latest book is Happy Mind, Happy Life, The New Science of Mental Well-Being. Congrats on, uh, on numerous bestsellers, but of course, this most recent one. Our community is very good at supporting authors, especially those uh, with such important messages as yourself. 
I want to say thank you for being a guest on the show. Uh, thank you for inviting me prior to recording to be a guest on yours. I will take you up on that the next time I'm over there. And uh, until next time, is there any other place where you would like to steer our community to pay attention to you and your work outside of, of your books and your podcast? No, guys, listen, I, I just want, I, I hope there was some things in this episode that you can apply now, whether you get the book or listen to the podcast or not. What matters more to me is that you, you've you understood the information and you start applying it. So why information, inspiration without action leads to nothing. So what I would say to people is, was there one thing that we spoke about today that connected with you, right? Think about that one thing, write it down, start applying it in your own life, start thinking about it in your own life, use that inspiration to actually make some real change in your life. So hopefully you got enough value for this. Sure, if you wanna check out the book and the podcast, that would be great as well. But really, I hope that this conversation helps you lead a more intentional life, a more authentic life, and yes, a happier and healthier one as well. And again, the podcast is Feel Better, Live More. More than 6,000 five-star reviews on Apple, uh, top health uh, podcast in the UK. Congratulations on your success. Thank you so much for being a guest. You you are welcome here anytime you've got something to share. Uh, Dr. Rangan, thank, thank you again so much. Until next time from uh, he and myself here at uh, UK to US connection here, uh, signing off and I bid you all adieu. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show and or Chase Jarvis, Creative Live, any of that stuff on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. I want to take a second to say thank you. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing the show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. <laughs>